0: This episode is brought to you by Birthsong Botanicals, whose Let There Be Milk herbal breastfeeding supplements help women to increase their breast milk supply. Head on over to birthsongbotanicals.com and check out Let There Be Milk. Common Sense Pregnancy customers get a special 10% discount at checkout when they use the promo code Common Sense. That's two words, lowercase. Hey, everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics, the podcast where we talk about all of that and then some. I'm the author of Common Sense Pregnancy, and that book is where this more than three-year conversation started. So if you haven't already picked up your copy, please do that, will you? It's your primer. It's your basic guide to what we're talking about. And um, it's a great guide for pregnant women and their partners, but also a good read for, you know, just about anybody who is interested in making some serious changes to the healthcare, prenatal care, and birth narratives we've created for women, mothers, and their children, which frankly, I think we can tell better stories, don't you? Yeah. So I'm going to keep the current events and politics part of this episode short this week but I really I am just deeply impacted by the tragedies that have happened in the world just this past weekend. I want to send a wave of love to the families in New Zealand who were killed and victimized by terrorists. I also want to applaud New Zealand's prime minister who looked at the assault rifle, white supremacy, and Islamophobia problem. She looked it square in the eye and took instant direct action to address it. And now New Zealand's government has agreed to reform the country's gun laws. No nonsense, no sending thoughts and prayers, although I'm certain a lot of that is happening too. That prime minister, Jacinda Ardern, is just a perfect example of what happens when women lead. Uh, I don't know what else to say about this. I also want to ask everyone to read the news about the cyclone that hit in Mozambique and Zimbabwe this weekend with death tolls already at a thousand. The magnitude of that tragedy is devastating and All I want to say about that is, you know, this is a story that we have heard before, where the most vulnerable people in the world are devastated by events that are probably directly related to climate change. And the brunt of it that they will bear for generations to come is beyond devastating. Now, if you want to help, and God, I hope you do, Please donate to reputable organizations. Um, you know, one of my favorites is CARE, CARE.org. Um, they're already doing great work in that area, and they are very well equipped to assist in this emergency and in the many years of cleanup and redevelopment it's going to take to get these countries back on track. Um, yeah, enough, enough of that this week. I I guess I'm just feeling such a heavy heart that I don't have a lot more I want to say. Um, Let's shift gears. So we're working on a couple of really exciting projects here at Common Sense, and I'm just dropping hints here today. I'm going to tease a little bit. I want you to keep your eyes open for upcoming announcements because we have a couple of things in the work coming your way via my website, jeanfogner.com, and I'm really excited about it. One of these things is inspired by a question I get a lot. Why common sense? Why did I name the book that? And what does it mean in terms of the podcast? Well, to be honest, I didn't name it that originally. I thought the book should be called Brass Tax Pregnancy, which is, you know, kind of an older term. It's not that old. It's not an ancient term, but it 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 means let's get down to basics. Let's talk about what's real, the basic facts that's what i wanted to write about when i first wrote that book and when i was you know writing for fit pregnancy and you know it's what i wanted to talk about because so much of what's written about pregnancy prenatal care and birth are you know frightening and they're centered on the healthcare industry and the insurance industry's needs and not so much on mothers and there's so much focus on meeting standards of care for you know rare just in case emergencies that rarely happen in real life Um, A lot of focus on babies' needs to the point where mom's needs, rights, and care kind of get sidelined. The problem with brass tacks pregnancy, though, was that my editors and the creative team at 10 Speed Press, um, they didn't really get the phrase brass tacks, and they thought it sounded painful, as if pregnancy isn't painful enough, right? Um, So we changed it to common sense, which means, you know, pretty, pretty close to the same thing. So what does common sense mean? Well, when you look it up in the dictionary, we get definitions like the ability to use good judgment in making decisions and to live in a reasonable and safe way. Um, It means sound and prudent judgment based on a simple perception of the situation or facts. And we get synonyms like good sense, mother wit, sound judgment, level-headedness, sharpness, astuteness, wisdom, insight, intuition, vision understanding, practicality, know-how, savviness. Honestly, don't you think that's kind of a running list of everything you need for a good pregnancy, parenting, and politics? So that's what common sense is. But I also think that common sense is that, you know, innate interwoven knowledge that almost everybody has about what's true and honest and what makes sense We all know on a gut level what the right thing to do is, you know, most of the time. And when we focus on that and cut through the nonsense, then we can make sound and prudent decisions about pregnancy or about parenting or about our work or about political decisions or healthcare, you know, everything. And we can make those decisions based on what's real. Not based on stuff we're afraid of or, you know, just on preventing unlikely outcomes that are potentially scary. You know, common sense lets us drill down and make decisions based on what's really happening, what we all know to be true. And, you know, then we can create real solutions. I gotta say, I'd say Prime Minister Arden showed a lot of common sense this weekend. So did my neighbor when she managed her toddler's massive tantrum this weekend by pouring herself a cup of coffee and waiting it out on the porch while her daughter ranted and cried about who knows what. She has a four-year-old. Clearly, logic wasn't going to work with her little one, so why not do what makes the most sense, wait it out and have a cup of coffee on the porch? (laughs) One of our listeners showed good common sense when she opted out of having an extra ultrasound during her pregnancy just because the technician had the time and the machine was available. She didn't have any particular need or medical reason to have one. She'd already had one earlier. Um, And though she said she would have enjoyed taking another peek at her baby, she knew that unnecessary medical interventions sometimes lead to other unnecessary medical interventions, sort of like a healthcare rabbit hole. And it doesn't always result in better healthcare. Use the interventions you need and don't use the ones you don't. And that is common sense. So we're going to talk a lot about common sense during upcoming episodes, because even after you know three years of this podcast, podcast conversation, we still need a heavy dose of it to change the way we treat women and families in this country. Okay, I promise to keep my rambling short today, so let's take a quick break and then come on back with this week's guest. First on Botanicals Let There Be Milk herbal breastfeeding supplements come in capsule and tincture form to help support your body to make more breast milk. Lactation herbs like organic marshmallow root, fenugreek seed, goat's rue herb, red raspberry leaf, and blessed thistle herb are well known to increase breast milk supply quickly and safely. These are some of the same herbs our great-great-grandmothers used to increase their milk supply back when most babies were breastfed because there were fewer few other options. Head on over to BirthSongBotanicals.com and check out "Let There Be Milk." Common Sense Pregnancy customers get a special ten percent discount at checkout when they use the promo code Common Sense. Okay, we're back now. Last week, we talked a bit about home birth with a certified professional midwife who practices exclusively in uh, out-of-hospital settings. For this week, I wanted to talk with a midwife who practices exclusively in a hospital. Now, we've talked with Chris Beard, certified nurse midwife, kind of a lot on this podcast. And this week, we're going to refeature our first conversation with her from June 2016. Take a listen to this episode and then tell us what you think.
1: Hi, Chris. How are you? It's Jeannie. Hey, Jeannie. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. It's been a while since you and I have chatted, lady.
2: I know. I've been watching all of your um, incredible doings on Facebook.
1: You know, don't they always look just so incredible on Facebook? And, you know, the reality is is that right now I'm sitting in my kind of grubby home office and you and I are
2: just chatting.
1: (laughs) It's not as glamorous as all that.
2: No, it never is, but I'm intrigued by some of the things that you're doing, so. Well, right back at you. That is pretty cool.
1: Because one of the ways that I was going to introduce you is that you're an avid camper. And so, you know, what I see is you camping all over the place, and it's great. So let me do a little bit, just a really quick little bio, and then let's dig into it. So Chris. Sure. Sure. Chris is a certified nurse midwife who works in the Kaiser Healthcare System where you deliver babies day and night. You're the mother of two daughters, as I mentioned, an avid camper, and you're an old friend. So, Chris, with that as the preface, tell us more about who you are and what you do.
2: Well, I am a native Oregonian, uh, born and well, not born born in Washington, but raised in Oregon. I have lived other places,
3: mm-hmm.
2: but um, what I have discovered is that I am an avid lover of the West. Um, I have always been a camper since I was a young adult. I actually never went camping as a kid. Uh, my parents were not that, were not campers. So I discovered camping with uh, various friends when I was in high school. And then when I was in college, I really started, you know, backpacking and um doing rafting and doing all that kind of stuff. And when, when my children came along, I realized that it was an opportunity for me to do all the things I never got to do as a kid. So, um, we have a lot of adventures camping and this spring we actually went on a two and a half week, five state three national park road trip in our, uh, ancient VW camper and it was absolutely fantastic we went from Portland to Moab Utah to the Grand Canyon to Bryce Canyon and then back home and it's really great um, as a parent it's a really great family togetherness activity although one of my children asked me at one point mom why do you like camping so much it's so much work for you so true um, so true so true But, but every once in a while the kids will come up and they'll say, mom, we really need to go camping. I really miss camping. And so a couple weeks ago, well, whenever Memorial day was, we went, um, we just had, I didn't make reservations. We just had two nights and we just um, left after work on for our left after school on Friday and just went up to the mountain hood national forest and found a spot at a sort of off the beaten track campground and, spent the night and there's nothing more delightful than having your children be the drivers of that experience and then having them have so much fun yeah
1: yeah
2: so one of the best things about taking them camping is that they sleep in the top um, of the pop-up camper and they sing to each other giggle together play cards together and then I just read and go to sleep when I'm ready to sleep
1: heaven that same weekend, I went, to Yosemite. Awesome. I went to Yosemite National Forest, and it was the first time that I had seen El Capitan and Half Dome and, you know, that, the really um, tourist popular side of the park. I'd never mm-hmm. seen that, and I grew up in, in mm-hmm. California. I've been to, you know, sort of the back side of it, Tuolumne Meadows and over on that side of the Sierras, but it was my first time, and I was
2: blown away, blown away. It's amazing. I have never been to Yosemite, but it is on my list.
1: It was great. And uh, I can't wait to go back. We rented bikes and did, you know, uh, I don't know how long it was. Somebody estimated we, we rode about 10 miles that day. And it was awesome. One of the best experiences I've had. Yeah.
2: Yeah, we are so lucky that we have access to all this public land, mm-hmm. and you know our national parks really are our legacy and mm-hmm. our children's legacy. And I feel very fortunate that we we have so much, such easy access here to a lot of incredible places.
3: Mm-hmm. So we're, what we're really
2: know, after-
1: we're also really really lucky that our I mean you, your daughters are early teens, adolescent, and early teen, and I've got a sixteen year old that they want to hang out with us in some of the most beautiful parts of the world.
2: We're lucky. Absolutely. We're lucky, for sure. lucky,
1: yeah. Oh, I saw some pouty teenagers there. Oh, baby, did I see some pouty teenagers and some moms who you could just tell they were on their last thread. That was it. it. There they were in Yosemite Valley looking at the most beautiful spots on Earth, and you could tell that their kid had just... Twanged the last nerve.
2: <laughs> well, you know, we all have those moments. I've got, um, you know, I'm a solo parent. I adopted two girls from China on my own, one when I was forty one and one when I was forty-five. So not only am I a solo parent, I'm also an old parent. And um, you know, one of the things I've learned is that it's always good to ask for a do over. Because when you've got adolescents and preteens and menopause under the same roof, Mm -hmm. um, you're going to need some do-overs. Give me an example. you know. Give me an example. An example of a um, do-over, let's see. So a couple weeks ago, one of my kids was really struggling with some limits that I had set that I – it was time for forecasting for high school. Oh, yeah. And – so I had some ideas about what I thought would be good for her. I, I wanted her to be in band because the high school she's going to has a great band and band is a way to um, have an instant community. And she has played the flute since she was in sixth grade. So I thought bands would be a great idea. Yeah. She did not think band would be a great idea. And so we kind of had a little tussle over who gets to decide what class you're going to take. And, you know, I don't usually pull the, because I'm the mom, that's why card. Mm -hmm. So I had to actually, you know, I I started to pull that card and I realized it wasn't going well because I was hearing, well, it's my life. You can't tell me what to do. I mean, she's not even 14 yet. You know, it's my life. You can't tell me what to do. And, you know, I kind of went down the, well, I'm your mother. I have a broader view, blah, blah, blah. And what I realized in the end was that my approach was not working. That kid was not going to do band. And, um, So what I ended up deciding was she gave me the catalog to look at. I looked at the catalog. I picked four things that I thought were things that would be good for her for the long run, that would be um, challenging but not too challenging, and that I would feel okay about her taking. She's in the Mandarin Immersion track, so she only gets one elective. Uh So one of her electives is Mandarin. The other one is whatever she chooses. Uh And she's expressed an interest in doing IB which means, you know, it's a different academic track. So yeah. Yeah. so what I ended up doing was I said, okay, let's try this. Let's have a do-over, and why don't you hand me the catalog? I'll give you a list of what I think is reasonable, and you can choose from that list. So that's what we ended up doing, mm-hmm. and she was okay with that, and I felt okay about it, and I realized that, you know, even though I think band would be great for her, she doesn't think band would be great for her, so yeah, yeah. it's not going to be great for her. Yeah. So she's going to take art instead.
3: All right. There so I go.
2: I gave her the choice of band, choir, speech and debate, or art, mm-hmm. and she chose art. All right. There you go.
1: So, yeah, yeah, good. Hmm. Kids, I'll tell you, I like the idea of the do-over. I don't think that we do yeah, anything but- quite that formal, but it, it comes up a lot where... You know, mom thinks one thing, dad thinks another thing, and the kid has an entirely different thing going on. And, uh, you know, as they get into the teen years, more and more, the kids know best what they really should be doing for themselves. And it's so hard to respect that sometimes.
2: It is. I would agree.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. Yeah. The hardest part about parenting is sometimes taking your hands off the wheel and letting the kids drive it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And I think I'm in a I'm in a uniquely challenging, and also uniquely um, I don't know what the right word is. Uh, being a being a solo parent means I don't have to ask another adult what the idea what the plan should be. Yeah. So the plan just gets to be my plan, which does have some advantages. Um, it also has disadvantages, but I'm very aware that you know I don't have to ask somebody else for permission. For where we go on vacation, or what we're going to do, or what decision we should make about dating, about curfews, about um, allowances, and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so but it is kind of a different path.
1: I was talking to my friend Jacqueline on the podcast just a few weeks back, and she is also a solo parent, and she she really she said the same thing that you know your autonomy, I guess, is a good word for it as a parent is one of the one of the real benefits, but she challenged the idea that anybody is a solo or single parent. She says, no matter where you are, you have a community around you that's helping, even if you're not entirely aware of it, like the school community or, you know, the daycare community or something like that. What do you think about that?
2: Well, I guess I agree in some ways because you certainly – I mean, I certainly would have never been able to be a solo parent without an incredibly strong community and great support from, you know, key people in my life. Mm
3: -hmm. But
2: I think when it comes down to it, when the rubber hits the road, you are all alone. And I say that in the sense that, um, you know, there's two, there's two kind of broad categories of times when you really feel the isolation or the loneliness of being a solo parent. And one is, when your kids do something really awesome, Mm -hmm. you're really the only one that cares.
3: Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. the other
2: is when when your kids are sick or when your kids have a serious medical problem, you're the only one. Mm -hmm. So I would say that those two categories of life events or moments are the times when you really are on your own. But I would say that, yes, there is a... in, in, on many levels, you weren't alone.
3: Yeah. Because
2: there are, you know, you have friends at school, you have friends at work, you have, um, you know, there are certainly a lot of micro communities to belong to. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there's the community of all your friends at work, all your nurse friends. That's how we know each other. Right. And then there's the community for me of adoptive parents, parents with kids from China, Mm -hmm. um, parents to go to our school, Parents who like to camp, you know, you can you can have all those communities, which is pretty awesome Yeah, yeah
1: Well, let's talk a little bit about Your career you've been a midwife for a good long time now and one of the questions. I wanted I've to a ask mid you... Oh, go ahead. Go, go ahead. ahead.
2: Sorry. Well, no, the, no. go
1: ahead. One of the questions. I was going to ask you is What's different about midwifery today than when you started your career?
2: Oh, so many things. Um, Well, I've been a midwife for 23 years, Mm
3: -hmm. and
2: I have worked in a variety of practice settings. I started out in a very tiny rural hospital with 26 beds and two OB beds. Um, And many times I was the only provider in the entire hospital. Um, And the nurses used to draw straws to see who had to do labor and delivery. Yeah, and then I went. <laughs> yeah, and then I went to a tertiary care center for a while, at, which had a level three nursery and a teaching program for midwifery students and for residents. And then I came to the Providence system, which is where we know each other from. Mm-hmm. And I worked in a midwife only practice. And for the last um, fifteen years, I've been working for Kaiser Permanente in the Kaiser system. So I feel like I have a broad, um, a broad experience and. Um, when I first started doing midwifery, um, there were, uh, let's see, how, how is the best way to say this? When I first started doing midwifery, there were far fewer bells and whistles and we really, I think relied a lot on our, um, skills. And I think that in today's world, there are many more bells and whistles that people feel are necessary and maybe aren't. So bells so and whistles, a,
1: we're talking different types of computerization, technology, I'm te- monitoring,
2: testing. I'm talking different testing, monitoring, um, categorizing people as high risk who may or may not be high risk, um, sort of the medicalization of birth.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and I think that is probably the the main thing. And the fur you know, one of the examples that I can use, and it's gonna seem kind of silly, is that when I graduated from midwifery school, routine ultrasound was not a thing. Right. You only got an ultrasound if you needed one.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: needing one meant you were measuring too small, you were measuring too big, or there was some other clinical sign that that something was maybe different than expected. Mm -hmm. Um, and now people get multiple ultrasounds and, um, I have come to believe that connecting with your baby through your 20 week ultrasound is an important milestone for a lot of people.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Um, so I, I have come to accept that, I guess is the right word, but I feel like ultrasound is, um, one of those technologies that, Is overused yeah and and the number of ultrasounds that people get in their pregnancy is shocking to me that's just one example and you know another example would be testing for fetal anomalies Mm -hmm. and um, you know the decisions that go around that go around that kind of testing and people just assume oh you just get the test and then and then what
1: right right so I know. there's so, so many a lot things. Of things
2: have changed.
1: Yeah. So many moms who are pregnant right now, as you mentioned, they take it for granted. They don't even necessarily realize that there could be downsides or that there are options or that it's actually not necessarily doing anything to improve their health or their baby's health. It's more about documentation, right. tradition. These days, the culture of care and documentation.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, protecting the
1: provider, protecting themselves against the lawsuit. Right. I've talked about that a few times about, you know, if a provider, a doctor, or a midwife, or a nurse is going to be sued when they go to court, they want to be able to show that they did absolutely everything that's possible to not have a negative outcome but doing everything that's possible doesn't guarantee a positive outcome and in fact we're seeing kind of the back the the flip side of that
2: absolutely
1: yeah and yet absolutely and yet you got to do it if you're going to be sued
2: right yeah yeah so so i would say that um you know every every time sort of the landscape, I mean, they say the pendulum swings back and forth and I've certainly seen that in my life. And I think that my job as a midwife is to keep the normal, normal Mm -hmm. and recognize when things are not normal. And I've um, you know, that's been just my mantra over the years. And one of the things that I think is um, ironically funny, if you will, Mm -hmm. is that for, for years, for decades, for millennia, for as long as midwives have been practicing, midwives have put babies right on mom's chest, dried baby off there, delayed cord clamping. And that's just, that's just the way we were raised. Mm-hmm. And now the medical establishment has decided that those things are good. And so now everyone is doing that. And new ideas and it's kind of, <laughs> yeah. And it's like, a brand, oh yeah, this is a new idea, delayed cord clamping. And I'm like, dude, I, I I learned that my very first birth in 1992 in North Central Bronx Hospital in New York.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So it's just it's just kind of ironic. So I I just kind of harken back to that when I'm in the middle of things that you know protecting the normal is my job and that's what I, I do. I like I that protect the normal, keeping the normal normal. That's great. Keeping the normal normal, but at the same time. Knowing what normal is means that I recognize when things are not normal. Yeah, and I'm I'm very quick to get help from my physician colleagues or um, get different kind of care from my, my patients. So,
1: so there is kind of a a big push right now in um, certainly in global maternal health care, but also here in the the U.S. to direct you know more. Normal healthy mothers towards midwifery care and just save the high risk patients for obstetricians. And as you know, you know that's the model of care in Europe um, and in countries that have the best maternal health outcomes. Um, and you and I both know OBs who are as low intervention as any midwife, and other OBs who would deliver every patient by C section if that was possible. Do you think that midwifery care is the solution to you know the poor? to poor maternal health outcomes that we see here in the United States and I guess specifically to really staggering c-section
2: rates? I do believe that it is the that it's the solution and you know I work in the Kaiser system and the Kaiser system has um, all of the elements in place to have midwives be sort of at the helm for normal healthy women and we are working to shift that within the Kaiser system to make sure that's what happens. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: But on on labor and delivery in the city of Portland, the Kaiser hospitals that are staffed by nurse midwives, the nurse midwives take care of all the healthy normal patients. And so we are um, fortunate to have, if not the lowest, one of the lowest C-section rates in the city of Portland at 21%. Mm -hmm. And I believe that that's primarily because the midwives are taking care of the normal patients. Right. The other sort of arm of that is that because it's a, a team approach to care on labor and delivery, you know, the physicians that I work with are equally committed to keeping the c- section rate low. So we have sort of a strategy in place for um, evaluating and assessing labors that are maybe drifting towards maybe someone else would, maybe if you were having a baby in a different hospital, you'd get a section for that situation. Mm-hmm. We have strategies in place to um, do appropriate but do appropriate C-sections, but as few as possible.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So I feel lucky to be part of that team. Um, but I do think that um, paying a surgeon to care for normal healthy women in labor is not a good use of our resources. How, and about, obviously,
1: how about asking mothers to deliver in the intensive care unit, which is what labor and delivery units have become, with their
2: own surgical ab, suites? It's crazy. It's, it's crazy. crazy. And you look at, is it? You, you'd probably know better than I since you're involved in global maternal health, but what is, does Iceland still have the best outcomes for moms and babies for morbidity be, and mortality? It might be Finland, but, it, you
1: know, Iceland's always right up there. Finland um, Norway and, yeah
2: and we're number thirty three correct
1: uh, it depends thirty
2: four yeah
1: it depends on which metric you're looking at but in terms of um, you know it, and some metrics were sixtieth and in some we are thirty somewhere in the 30s mid thirties changes yeah. um, but what what really yeah. what really is staggering is that you know, I've been, I've been working in the global maternal mortality world for a while, and over the amount of time that I've been involved in this, um, we're seeing maternal mortality rates drop. Um, even in some of the most desperate parts of the world, we're seeing those numbers go down. But we're not seeing that happen in the United States, and we're one of eight countries that has a rising maternal mortality rate. And
2: uh, that's concerning. And considering the um, amount of technology and the amount of money that we have available and being used for maternal care, Mm -hmm. it is shocking. Mm
3: -hmm. And
2: I think that, um, I do think that midwifery is part of the solution for for changing that metric. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And yet you
3: know
1: we're we're in a really liberal part of the country, but in many 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 parts of the country um midwifery doesn't have the reputation that it does here. It's still looked at as you know a a hippie birth, you know right, and that's pretty inaccurate in most cases i mean there are there are absolutely there are always those stories that people seem to find somewhere about. You know, somebody's cousin's girlfriend's stepsister saw a birth once and decided to deliver a baby in somebody's shed. That isn't, you know, and then, and then you hear that story quoted around as an an argument for why midwifery isn't the solution. And that's bullshit.
2: That's just totally bullshit. I totally agree. Yeah. It's total crap. Yeah. 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 And I, you know, I, I'm the lead of my group at this point. Uh Um, and one of the one of the things my co lead and I have been doing is um, educating people within the Kaiser system about midwifery, mm-hmm. about midwifery Kaiser, about midwifery in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And so I have given multiple presentations in the last year to various groups of people about what a midwife is, what a midwife does, how midwives are educated, and. You know, what we know is in the city of Portland, midwifery in the last six years has really increased. Every hospital now has a midwifery practice. Every private physician group wants a midwifery practice because people in Portland want midwife. Mm-hmm. They want midwifery care. Mm-hmm. And believe me, women are, when they, before they purchase an insurance plan, they are checking to see is there midwifery care offered with this insurance plan. Mm-hmm. Um and I think midwifery has always been more popular on the coast, both the East coast and the West coast, and that there are large uh, portions of the country where there are no midwives or there are very few and they're, they're having to struggle to prove their worth. And I'm not sure how you change that? That's a bigger, it's a bigger conversation than, than I know how to have.
1: Well, we just keep having the conversations and, you know, Opportunity by opportunity, we educate the public, we raise awareness, and then that's where change starts. You know, one thing that, you know, when we talk about pregnancy and maternal health and prenatal care, most people are actually talking about outcomes for the baby, not the mom. You know, you hear it all the time. You want to make sure that you take your folic acid so your baby is healthy you want to make sure that you don't eat certain lunch meats so your baby is healthy. Very little, yeah, very little conversation, academic and scientific research studies, you know, very, very little is actually focused on the mom's outcomes. And, you know, you even hear, all that really matters is a healthy baby, right? I mean, it doesn't really matter what you just went through because you got a healthy baby. And, you know, again, I'm calling bullshit on that. A healthy baby is not all that matters. And a healthy mother who comes through her pregnancy feeling strong and respected and, you know, that matters a lot. And I, and I think
2: that that is... It does matter a lot.
1: I think that might be part of why women are accessing midwifery care. What do you think?
2: Well, I think midwives view women as their partners mm-hmm. through the pregnancy journey. Mm-hmm. And it is about the woman and it's about her family and midwives have always been good at providing individualized care and what works for you or what you need is not necessarily what I need for mm-hmm. my pregnancy
3: mm-hmm.
2: and so midwives listen, midwives will partner with you, midwives will give you truly informed consent about what you're about to undertake and I think that's why women seek out midwifery care. Mm-hmm. Because they want to be listened to and they want to be, they want to have a say in their health care.
1: I always look at it in terms, you know, I look at everything with a feminist lens. And I think that um, a lot of women, a lot of women are bristling against the over-authoritarian um approach, opinion, slant, perspective, I don't know, whatever you want to call that, that they feel in a more traditional medical setting. You know, the doctor is the king and the patient does what she's told. And I think that maybe they, I think that women may feel less of that, less imbalance in the relationship with a midwife. I
2: don't know that that that's always the case. well, let's just talk about where that might even start. I mean, when I come in the room, I say, hi, I'm Chris Beard. I'm the midwife that's going to be seeing you today. Yeah. When my colleague comes in the room and says, hi, I'm Dr. Overbeck, that sets up a power disparity right then and there. Yeah. And so, and I think it slows down from there. So I totally agree that the um, traditional medical model is one of a differential in power.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: it's very patriarchal.
1: Very. Very. Even if the obstetrician is a woman.
2: Absolutely. She's still Dr. So-and-so.
1: Yeah. 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 I think that's um, a lot of women that I talk with don't quite recognize the setup, but they instantly, you know, take the back seat to whatever their doctor is telling them.
2: You know? That's part of... That seems to be part of our culture as we grow up. You know, in the American culture, you grow up, you go to the doctor, the doctor tells you what to do. And then when you you're do it. Kid. Yeah. And yeah. then you do it. And so it's only when you realize that doctors are not gods. They don't know everything. They mm-hmm. make mistakes. They make bad decisions. They give bad advice amongst their good advice and the good care they provide for people. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we're, we're socialized to do whatever they say, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Without really recognizing that
1: ultimately any medical care that you get, you are getting because you made the choice to get it. Most people don't recognize that. I mean, even if your doctor said, um, I want you to have your fifth ultrasound you don't actually have to have that ultrasound. You are the one who chooses to get in the car and drive over for that appointment and show up in the room and pull your shirt up. People don't recognize that. And
2: people don't, and people don't recognize you can say no. You can say no. If somebody says, I want you to have this vaccine or I want you to have this test or I want you to have this procedure, you can say no. Mm-hmm. And I tell my patients, unless I tell you, your life is in danger or your baby's life is in danger. You can always say no and you can always ask for time to think about it.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We both And know I think that... it's
2: very hard for people. Very hard for people.
1: Yeah. That's taking ownership of your own health and health care. And I think, you know, both you and I know that the really true, huge, screaming, bloody emergencies, they don't happen that often. Most of the time... It's not like that. And so when you're in labor and delivery and your provider is telling you what to do, you do have time almost every single time to say, I need some time to think about it. Let's give this another hour or so. There are those occasions. We've seen that too where, oh, no, we need to go now. We need to do something now. But those don't actually happen all that often.
2: It's quite rare, actually. Quite rare. And it's more it's quite rare. And, um, and I see people, I think what happens on labor and delivery is that women feel bullied. Yeah. They feel bullied into saying yes to things that they don't really want. Right. And, you know, it's it, in my setting, because I work in a I uh, I work in a team practice with physicians and midwives, you know, the physicians are still King, unfortunately, or captain of the ship or whatever you want to say. And, I don't always agree with what I'm being asked to convey Mm -hmm. And the perfect example is your water's broken. It's been broken for six hours. You come in and American college of obstetricians says you need Pitocin right now, right? Your, your water's broken. You need to have a baby. And my personal belief is that you might need some, if you want Pitocin, that's okay. But, we should give your body time to get the message that your water's broken and it's time to have a baby. Yeah. And so sometimes I feel like I'm part of the problem because at my institution the standard of care is your water's broken, you get Pitocin. Yeah. So I'm always walking the fine line to try to, you know, support what my institution requires me to support and give the woman permission to say no. Yeah. Yeah. It's all in how you phrase it. I want more time. It is. Mm -hmm. It is all in how you phrase it, which is, you know, truly informed consent versus, you know, bullying people to to say yes to what you want them to say yes to. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. Because so often what will follow in that conversation is, okay, you got to come in and have Pitocin um, because you want a healthy baby, right? I mean, what mom is going to answer that question with no? You know?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true.
1: Yeah. I know. We phrase it like that all the time. It's I know. And it's very manipulative. It's very manipulative. And we both know that most of the time, you don't actually need the Pitocin. Your body will kick into labor on its own, just like it's supposed to, and do the job beautifully. I really don't like the, the messages that we give women that you're doing something slightly outside of the norm. Therefore, you're abnormal, and we're going to fix you. I mean, sometimes that is exactly the case, but not that often.
2: Well, the lang- again, it gets back to the language. I mean, I, I really have difficulty with the language that we use in obstetrics. Mm-hmm. Dysfunctional labor. Right. Failure to descend. Right. I mean, all of those terms, they're all very judgmental and mechanical. Right.
1: As if mom failed, therefore, let's fix her. Correct, Because we have all yeah. of these tools in the toolbox
2: that we can use. You're dysfunctional. Yeah. Your labor is dysfunctional. We must fix it.
1: The truth of the matter is most of the time that the system is dysfunctional. The woman is just fine. She's in labor. She's doing her thing. She's on her own, you know, time track. If we left her alone, most of the time, I don't know, probably nine times out of ten, she'd deliver just fine without our messing with her. The system totally agree. The system is what's broken. How many times do you hear a woman say, Oh, I had to have an emergency C section and you think instantly, Yeah, it wasn't an emergency
2: <laughs> I think that all the time. All every the time, time I hear the word emergency. Yeah.
1: You didn't have you had yeah. every something time else. <laughs> every time. Yeah. My baby's heart rate dropped yes. and I had to have an emergency C section.
2: Yeah, well. Mm hmm. And I wonder if that's how people need to think about it, that it was an emergency, so it had to happen. So therefore they can accept it.
1: Right. Right. Because they were actually sorta powerless in that situation. Yeah.
2: Though I you know, the other the other thing about labor and delivery and the environment is that it's so foreign to people that they are paralyzed and they're like sheep. You know, they're they're gonna do if they're told you know, you need to have a C-section, they're going to say, okay, because it's for your baby. Right. And since it's such a foreign environment, um, they're at our mercy. Right.
1: They also, most people don't know what actually is for the baby and what actually is for the insurance company. You know, it, people don't know. And, that is precious cargo. You've been carrying that baby for 9 months. You want a healthy baby. And if these people are telling you that you have to go do this thing or you have to accept these interventions in order to complete this journey to have the healthy baby, you're going to do it. Most people are going to do it.
2: You absolutely.
1: Yeah. But I think that word is getting around that we have a big problem here in the United States. And I was just talking to um one of the researchers at the Quality Maternal, no, California Maternal Quality Care Coalition, and they, oh yeah, you know, yeah, they just put out a new tool kit for clinicians about how to avoid the first C-section and support vaginal birth, and it's very comprehensive. It's you know, it's it's an excellent tool for hospitals to have on board, um, but the fact that we have to have these kinds of initiatives is kind of startling you know
2: for sure yeah yeah for sure
1: well um you and i have actually been talking for quite a while now and i want to ask you the last question that i like to ask everybody you ready i am where are you in your life as a mom
2: Oh, you mean in terms of, uh, I guess I need more clarification. You get to answer it any way you want. Where are you in your life as a mom? Well, I would say that I am very content Mm -hmm. and sometimes challenged by my life as a mom. Mm -hmm. I am really glad that I chose the path of motherhood and my kids have taught me more than I ever could have imagined. And my path is markedly different than it would have been without them. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: So I'm very, I'm very content with that. And I think that I'm challenged because I'm constantly learning from my kids and having to morph and adapt to what they need and what we need as a family. And you just can't predict what's going to be around the next corner. So it, it keeps you on your toes.
1: Yeah, it does. And, you know, as the mom, you're the mom of adolescent teenage daughters. Frankly, I like to get the word out to mothers with younger children that, yeah, the teen years, adolescent years are, they're different. They are different, but they're not as scary as many people think.
2: Do you agree with that? I totally agree with that. And I think that you just. You know, it's kind of like being pregnant. You don't really have a choice. Once you've made that decision, you're on the path.
3: Mm-hmm. Your kids
2: are going to get to be adolescents, and you'll survive. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of, you know, many people have come before you. And so accessing your community of friends and your wise mothers um, is always an option when you're stumped with mm-hmm. what to do.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think that um, teenagers don't get enough attention for how brilliant and passionate and full of potential they are and you know we we give all the big press to the stupid choices they make and the you know notorious behavior that teenagers seem to get into but what about the fact that they are all about discovery they're all about you know they're just finding out who they are at their most distilled point in life. They're just they're about radical change and about finding out who they are. And that is actually sort of the ideal I think of what we all want for our lives. I mean, I don't want to be a teenager it's forever. It's awesome to watch. Yeah. Yeah. To to watch them learn that no, I am art. I am not the band. You know? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, Chris, hate to let you go. I have a feeling you and I will talk again on the podcast, but let's say goodbye for now. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to us and sharing your insights and perspective.
2: Well, it was a pleasure, and thanks for having me, Jeannie. Okay, great. We'll talk again soon.
3: Mama said there'll be days like this, there'll be days
0: That's it for this week's. This week, folks, we want to say thanks to our sponsor, Birdsong Botanicals, for helping us keep the lights on here at Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics. Check out Let There Be Milk Tincture and Supplements over at BirdsongBotanicals.com and don't forget to use the promo code Common Sense at checkout for your 10% discount. If you're looking for easy ways to feed your family, I've got you covered. Hi, this is Liz Weiss, dietitian, mom, cookbook author, and host of the Liz's Healthy Table podcast. Tune in for healthy recipes, expert advice, and a big helping of fun. Come find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, the Parents on Demand Network, or over at my website,
2: Liz'sHealthyTable.com.